Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Listeners, welcome to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, we're up to episode number 16. Uh, not too bad for a couple of gearheads who didn't even know what podcasting, um, how to do a podcast when we first started this uh, adventure. Absolutely. I'm not going to lie. And we've had some refreshing remarks. And just recently, I think I, I shared with uh, the tech team, uh, we've had a couple of out-of-country folks to reach out and to speak different languages, the primary language is we're saying thanks for sharing info. So that's promising. That's great to hear. And, uh, Hey, we're famous worldwide or infamous. I don't know. Either <laughs> one will work. <laughs> well, you are a Chicagoite. So. <laughs> that's why. Hey, I know, I know. I'm a transplant now. <laughs> <laughs> bang, bang, bang. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, before we get into our uh, interview here, uh, we do have some history to talk about, which happened on March 31st of 1932, and that's when the Ford Flathead V8 was unveiled to the general public. While the V8 itself was not new to anybody, the way that Ford manufactured it as a single cast block and made it affordable to the masses in the Ford Model 18, and how it ushered private motoring into a new era. Having long produced a four-banger for the Model T and its variants, it is said that Ford first tried to build a six-cylinder engine to compete with Chevrolet, but numerous problems brought the project to a halt. Henry Ford then pushed development of an affordable V8, framing Ford as an industry leader, not a follower. While the flathead and a standard four-cylinder would carry Ford through the 1930s, the company finally introduced a six-cylinder engine in 1941, 35 years after the last serious attempt at creating the style of motor. That first six outfitted to the Model K, which debuted in 1906. While many historians believe that the Model K was a poor seller for Ford, it was actually quite to the contrary. In 1907, some 500 Model Ks were sold, making it the highest selling six-cylinder in the world at the time. The profits made from the K helped Ford develop four-cylinder Model T, which was introduced in 1908 and largely unchanged till 1927. You take a look at that number 500, you know, today, that's that's a one-sixth of maybe what they build a day. But I was... That's what some dealers have on their lots, or used to have on their lots. Now they don't. <laughs> right. I was uh, I was listening to the, the book Edison and also uh, the book about Tesla called the wizard and I, I was interesting fact you know you talk about these guys that are known for electrical stuff but so one of the uh talking points in there was in 1909 33 percent of the cars running around in the city streets were actually electric as opposed to only 13 percent internal combustion engines uh the problem back then was batteries and how to charge them not much has changed in 110 years, huh? I was going to say, we're still at that problem, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, the original Ford Flathead was a 221 cubic inch that produced a whopping 65 horsepower. 
After five production variations, the final Ford flatheads were produced in 1954. Today, this engine still remains a favorite of the American Hot Rodder. 65 horsepower. That's not a lot, Chuck. Not much, considering my motorcycle has 135. <laughs> oh, top speed is 20 miles an hour downhill with a tailwind. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, another little trivial information tidbit. You know, the Model T's have that funny little put, 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 you know, that people yep. really like. And, uh, we, you know, we heard from Scat that when they strengthened up that crank, it made it sound different that a lot of the purists didn't want the crankshaft because it sounded so different. It didn't flex and have the old. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. No, but speaking of this flathead, you know, uh, AERA is turning 100 years old this year. So uh, for this year's engine giveaway at the PRI, we are actually building one of these Ford flatheads. Are we not, Chuck? Yes, we are. Actually, we're we're pretty well into this project. And we, we think it's going to be a pretty cool deal. Uh, you have a chance to see it at PRI. What we're going to try to do is bring a little bit of the old, a little bit of the new. Um, I think everybody that's in that has any interest and follows the land speed world. There's still a lot of stuff happening with the old flathead Ford supercharged yeah. and switching intake exhaust and just a lot of cool things that you can do. And there's some pretty neat parts for them out there. So uh, be looking for that. We think it'll be a pretty neat deal. Yeah. And you can follow along with that engine build um, that is happening in the engine professional magazine. So if you're not getting the magazine, you can go to the website, engineprofessional.com. Sign up to receive the magazine. You can follow along the engine builds. Uh, Mike Maverigan's going to do it just as he's done in the past. And I believe Mike has built one of these before in the past. And I'm telling you, the one that I saw was just exquisite. And I don't expect anything different from Mike on this one. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, it looks like our guest is uh, ready to start talking today, and that'll be Jeff Harmoning from API Oils, which is the American Petroleum Institute, where Jeff is the senior manager. Uh, Jeff is going to enlighten us on some licensing, engine oil specifications, and diesel engine oils. Um, so I'm going to have Dave Hagen sit in for me because Dave has been talking to some of these people uh, throughout getting this all set up and has been involved with them in the past um, at API, getting some bulletins and materials for us. So if you guys are all set, we'll rock and roll and get Jeff going. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. My name is Jeff Harmoning. I'm with the American Petroleum Institute. I've been working with the API for about a dozen years. Uh, all of those have been working closely with the engine oil licensing and certification system. I have about 10 years prior experience in that program managing the aftermarket audit program, which is a program that uh, API has where we're out in the aftermarket sampling and testing engine oils to ensure that they meet the the standards, but now I'm uh, managing that department and I work with a, a diverse team of employees to help us keep everything glued together. Terrific. So that just made me think of something. 
if you're sampling in the aftermarket, is there stuff that isn't certified that's making it into parts stores that people can consume? Not really in the parts stores, I would say, you know, because the marks are on the bottles and we actively police the use of those marks. We've, we've caught most of the bad actors. I, I can't say that we've caught them all because one pops up here and there no matter what. But when you get into like the parts stores and stuff like that, you, you're, you're seeing API licensed fluids, correctly licensed fluids, um, you know, here in the States uh, and, you know, in, in addition to around the globe, we've got about 29,000 licensed products. So we have to we have to look for products and sample pretty much everywhere. We're in the in the chains. We're doing sampling and testing at the bulk. Uh, bulk engine oil installer locations, uh, the big box stores, you know, the convenience stores, you name it. Um, the good news is in package product, uh, generally speaking, there's there's uh, there's there's uh, uh, everything out there in the parts stores is ultimately licensed by API. So what systems did API update to ensure proper licensing of motor oils plus their storage and handling? Sure. Well, for those who want to really dig deep into it, our entire program, plus all of the lubricant specifications, is contained in API 1509. This is downloadable PDF for free on our API website for those who want to take a look at it. Um, we're constantly updating that specification or that publication. And, and you know, there have been a lot of changes recently that are more designed for the formulators of the world um, right now, but when a new specification does come out and we are working on a, a new diesel engine oil category as we speak, that will end up being published in API 1509 and uh, that will help marketers and formulators uh, determine what technologies they need to create to meet the, the next set of certifications. We also have on there, again, for free and downloadable something called API 1525. And that is our bulk oil testing, handling, and storage guidelines. And these guidelines provide recommended equipment and procedures for the proper handling of incoming and outgoing shipments of lubricants, um, ultimately to prevent contamination, spillage, and protect, protect uh, the product quality down, down the supply chain. Um, and those guidelines cover you know, all forms of bulk engine oil, whether that's going into a, you know, a 5,000 gallon tank under, uh, you know, under the shop, uh, whether that, and it also includes drums, IBCs, and pails. So <clears throat> what steps did API take to protect the bulk oil chain of custody? Sure. Well, that actually harkens to yet another standard that we recently, uh, updated this past year that's called api 1525a and i'll assure you these are all all these documents i'm talking about are on the same page so you don't need to really jot too many notes down right now it's all right there um, ultimately that publication precise uh, provides procedures for managing bulk engine oil throughout the chain of custody from the marketer all the way down to the point where it's installed in a customer's engine and we did update that again this year. We didn't need to do a lot of updates, but there were some changes in the within the NIST Handbook 130, which are the regulations uh, that are adopted by over half the states here in the in the country. 
um, and we wanted to synchronize 1525A with those updated changes. Now, both of these documents, and most importantly, NIST Handbook 130, address the requirements of um, what should be reported to the consumers at the point of sale. And, um, you know, to, if I could summarize it very briefly, um, it, it requires that anyone selling oil to somebody else, regardless of where you're at in the chain, identify the uh, manufacturer, the brand name, the viscosity grade, and the API service category or other, other category like an OEM spec perhaps um, on their receipts so that there is traceability from the marketer all the way down to the point where it goes into the engine, as I said before. So uh, very important. We, we find that to be a very important document. Um, and I think it'll be very helpful to, uh, you know, the listeners here. So Jeff, I'm going to interrupt there just a bit. NIST. So that has a, a lot of tentacles that reach out to a lot of industries. Would you speak to what the NIST is? Yeah. Yeah, the NIST Handbook 130, um, NIST essentially is the Department of Commerce. Um, their handbook is developed by the National Conference on Weights and Measures. So you can think of that group as um, each state's representatives in charge of their departments of food and agriculture. These are the folks that are going out into the, into the marketplace and making sure that a gallon's a gallon and a pound's a pound. Well, they've adopted regulations, oh, well over eight years ago now that, again, require that, uh, that, that, that installers disclose the, the manufacturer, the brand name, this grade and, and, you know, performance level of the engine oil, because consumers need to know this information, you, you know, specifications, uh, and, and standards are cited by many of, uh, especially the North American OEMs. You can open up your owner's manual, and uh, see the API quality marks. You know when you when you go to look up what type of engine oil to put in your in your application. Um, because of that, it's it's very very important that the right oils are being installed. This is a technology that helps not only trucks, cars, buses. Uh, it helps meet the uh, you know environmental regulations. It helps meet fuel economy targets. It helps meet. Uh, you know, provides, uh, you know, the right level of protection for the engine. So it's imperative that that the uh, consumer, you know, the uh, Joe Oil Change who rolls into the local quick lube or what have you is, is, is uh, receiving exactly what it is that their vehicle um, requires. And that's why the, the NIST folks have, have, have been engaged on this for a long time. Right. And some of the information uh, provided, uh, like the, you mentioned the API 1525A, uh, again, you speak in tons of acronyms. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we will cover some of those today as, as we talked earlier, but like MOM, the Motor Oil Matters, uh, the licensing for that there. Uh, so are you, is that one that it's, I haven't seen that so much marketed? Can you give us a little background? Sure. Uh, API is, uh, does also run the Motor Oil Matters program and API 1525A is the basis for that. So essentially what we're, what that is, is it's a, we'll call it a licensing program for distributors and installers alike. 
that if they meet those requirements and are accurately reporting out the manufacturer brand name Visgrade and performance category on their drop tickets, on their orders, on their receipts to consumers, they can basically join the Motor Oil Matters program and uh, you know have, have rights to yet another set of trademarks and appear on the Motor Oil Matters directory, which is more of a geographic search. Um, so that program, basically, if, if we've got the marketers licensed, as we do with the engine oil licensing program, and, and we're also licensing distributors and installers, we've got a program that represents each part of the supply chain um, on down the line. And, you know, ultimately, the responsibility for quality does start with the oil manufacturer, um, but it ends, it ends with the installer. So it's important um, that, that this information is accurately conveyed down the chain. The importance at the installer level, has that been something that's changed the most, would you say, in the past 10 years, the last five years? Because an example that I have that when I worked in an engine remand facility, of course, we want it to be as simple as possible and use as few different lubrications as possible. But but we're building engines from, you know, a Model A in a custom machine shop to something current. And we quickly found with camshaft phasing, variable valve timing, anything that was, a, you know, a solenoid controlled function within the engine, uh-oh, now we have to pay attention to the oil that we put mm-hmm. in there. The old fifteen forty across the board is a thing of the past. It is, and it's it's gotten a lot more complex uh, over the years since uh, since you were working in that capacity. You know, the latest diesel categories, for instance, we 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 had our first split. Ultimately, we have API C categories. The current uh, the current category for the C categories is CK4. Uh, we also have API FA4 at present as well. And this was the first time that within our specifications we had a divergence, and it was necessary because of the rapidly changing uh, engines in the marketplace, specifically around those newer engines, 2017 and plus that have uh, that are that are operating on these really lower lower viscosity grades so we license uh we license fa4 diesel engine oils that go all the way down to 5w30 viscosity grade uh this is helping to get those fuel economy targets that the engine manufacturers need in order to be able to certify their engines so it's it's gotten a lot more complex but at the same time we try to keep it as simple as possible so the latest category api ck4 it's backwards compatible to all of the previous APIC categories, which will take you all the way back into the middle of the 20th century if you want. But the current licensing categories and for most of the uh, engine park out there on the on the roadways, it, you know, if you have an older model engine that requires something like CJ4 or CI4, you can be rest assured that the new category CK4 has been developed uh, to ensure that those uh, those specifications are met as well. So backwards compatibility is an important part of any new spec, any new API spec for sure. Um, and just the same on the gasoline side with the API S service categories, uh, which we currently license uh, to API SP. So, you know, technology certainly is, is changing at a pace that I don't think any of us have ever experienced before. Um, and, uh, and, and my guess is it's not going to 
slow down anytime soon. Uh, we'll be we'll be doing this for a long time. I know we'll get a little bit redundant in some of this, but uh, again, because you did touch on some of the diesel, but what are the specifics of requests for a new diesel engine oil specification? Yeah, so in the middle of uh, in the middle of the year last year, twenty twenty one. We got a request from the Engine Manufacturers Association, the EMA, uh, for the next diesel engine oil spec, essentially. And part of that request listed out the improvements that they wanted. The engine manufacturers uh, want increased oxidation performance. They want new wear test capabilities. They want to go even lower on viscosity grades. They want, uh, you know, improved after treatment capabilities. Uh, they want uh, additional uh, seal compatibility because there are new elastomers out there being being used that weren't addressed in the older specs. So all of these things are very high level uh, are, are what are part of that request. But, you know, the other sort of piece of it is some of the existing tests, the MAC-T11, the MAC-T12 tests, you know, parts for that are now, uh, you know, those engines have been discontinued. The parts, uh, the parts buy-in and the parts inventory are running out so they're looking for uh, you know these are wear tests they're looking for a replacement test for those to help keep the older categories alive we do like to keep the older diesel categories uh, active because there are folks in developing countries you know quite frankly where all, where all of our older engines end up you know in in, in south america and africa and other parts of the world that are still running these engines you know and it's important to have these older categories. So we're, we're also working on trying to replace those tests and keep those older categories alive. In terms of when they want this specification to be delivered, ultimately they've asked the API to begin first licensing of engine oils against this new category. We're calling it PC12, proposed category 12 right now. Um, Ultimately, what, what they're asking from us is that we begin, we, the API, begin licensing against those standards on January 1st, 2027. So that's going to coincide with the EPA implementation, implementation date uh, for their next set of on-highway regulations and CARBs as well. And, uh, you know, how this is going to end up working is we're going to be working furiously to develop these new tests uh, so that we get the spec finished on December 1st of 2026. And then we have a mandatory waiting period before we do licensing to allow everybody to get their lubricant technologies, uh, you know, developed and in place and, you know, have a level playing field by the time uh, the 1st of 2027 rolls around. So uh, we're following the same, uh, you know, sort of the same roadmap and development that we did for CK4 and FA4 and, it's going to be a busy couple of years doing so. So what are the potential benefits to the diesel engine include? Yeah, uh, some of this stuff is, is a little bit in the weeds on me, but, you know, um, the engine manufacturers are working hard to, uh, you know, spell this out. But um, and it, first of all, it's, it's and most importantly, it's going to support those requirements for fuel economy for certain engine models. It's going to support those new elastomers that are going to be in the seals and the engines. Um, it's going to provide that better uh, wear, uh, wear and oxidation and performance in general. 
And then for the, the engine builder folks, I'm sure this means more to them than it does to me, but it's going to enable new engine technologies that are expected to experience uh, high brake mean effective pressures um, and, and as well as the customer uh, demands. So uh, there's, a, there's a slew of benefits. And as they work through it over the next three years, there may be additions. There may be some, uh, I doubt there'll be some subtractions. The EMA was very clear on on what they wanted, but you know, there's there's an opportunity now between now and the January first, twenty twenty six, where uh, you know new things may come up, and 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 we may have to develop something else. So lots of benefits to the to the drivers, you know, especially those that are, you know, get a get a new uh, new piece of equipment, and and it specifies using those you know lower viscosity grades. You know, folks are just going to have to learn. You said it earlier. Fifteen W forty is sort of a thing of the past right now. It's going to be far more common in the in the engines of the future on 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 diesel engines of the future to start seeing these ten W thirties, these five W thirties, and you know, it's just important to remind the the end user uh, that you know these oils um, have been specified by the engine manufacturer because these are the oils that enable that engine to operate um, at its uh, at, at its highest highest efficiency with the best protection available. And I, I know that's a tough crowd to, uh, you know, sort of pound that into because we've, we've just been used to 15W40 and 10W40 for so long. But uh, if, if you want your newer pieces of equipment to work, uh, these newer oils are going to be the ones you want to you want to install. Okay, so Jeff, so what should engine builders and the machine shops expect from these new oils uh, when they start coming available? Yeah, I, I've talked about a little bit of that um, already, but you know, we're anticipating a, 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 a much improved performance of engine oils, which is going to basically enhance the durability of engines. Um, and aid in meeting those regulations. Um, obviously, enhanced durability and, and enhanced fuel efficiency uh, really does result in a reduced cost of ownership. But, um, you know, there are other potential environmental benefits as well um, with sulfate, sulfated ash, phosphorus, sulfur in these lubricants that will support engines that satisfy these upcoming tighter environmental regulations on lower emissions. And it's quite likely that lower oil drain intervals are going to be uh, very much possible. And, and, and that'll help everybody support, you know, everything from their sustainability goals to just their product catalogs. So it's, you know, and, and this is typical pretty much with every diesel engine oil category. You know, what are the what are the drivers these days? It's always the regulatory side that really pushes a lot of this and, and, and pushes it in a good and positive way. So. These, these are the benefits to expect for the engine builders. So where do you think that is leading us relevant, you know, petroleum-based as opposed to full synthetic and so forth? Is, as I take a look at like the, the saps, the sulfated ash, mm -hmm. phosphorus, and sulfur, how do you get there by trying to really get away from the petroleum-based stuff? Yeah, I mean, let's face it. There, uh, you know, the use of synthetic uh, base stocks is 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 very very common and and and, and required to uh, you know accomplish these uh, higher performing engine oils. Um, but with respect to 
you know, the, the terms full synthetic versus semi-synthetic or synthetic blend versus conventional, you know, it's important to remember that there is not a specification that really describes what it takes to be a full synthetic engine oil. Those have been hashed out in courts of law to ultimately, you know, be reduced down to nothing more than marketing terms. But for oils that meet the current categories uh, and, and the newer categories to come, uh, you know, you you'll be finding that the base stocks in those in those products are, are certainly uh, trending on the on the on the full synthetic side. So right with that, the cost of these oils is going to go up as well. Well, I would imagine yes. I mean, we're we're a long way from determining, uh, you know, what these oils are going to look at look like. You know, give us a couple years, and I'll get back to you on that. But <laughs> obviously, the price of everything is going up right now um, with inflation, with the current geopolitical dynamics. Um, you know, I see in my. Uh, daily, uh, you know, jobber alerts, uh, you know, that, 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 that there's been some lube price changes as recently as last week with some of the, the majors. Um, uh, there's a lot of factors that play into the cost. And that's why I think it's important to, uh, you know, transition to these newer oils, including the current one, CK4 and FA4, uh, especially if you're, you're getting into equipment that's, uh, you know, extending those drain intervals. I think that helps that helps swallow the, the pill a little bit for the, for the user, uh, the general user. Right. So the fact that your stuff is say, we're looking at 2027 for the, that to, to be finalized. So in the interim is, are you locked in on the testing? So that, you know, it's a five year plan. Mm -hmm. How much can change? Or is the, okay, we have to test this, this, in this sequential order to get to the end in mind, or is this a kind of a fluid dynamic thing? So you don't really know where, it, I mean, it could have a lot of changes between now and then. Yeah, it could. And, and the complex part of any, any engine, uh, engine oil specification generally lies with those engine tests that are uh, very expensive to develop, very expensive to run. Ultimately, you know, um, the engine test can be uh, basically summarized as a as an engine or a dyno stand in a in a test laboratory that um, you know runs the engine oils for a specific amount of time. On the diesel side, those times can be as high for some of the tests can be as high as 250 hour long tests, and then the engine is taken apart, parts are inspect inspected for wear and other properties. Um, the other side of it is the bench tests, you know, the physical and chemical properties of the lubricants and, and what the additive packs that go into the base stock um, need to contain. Um, the good news here is that we do try to, because of the backwards compatibility issue, we don't mess with a lot of the spec, what we have to really deal with and what takes so long in developing these, these engine tests that are built into the categories is really forming up precision matrices matrices to begin the study on the engine to see if it's going to serve the purpose, if it's going to measure the proper type of wear, whether that's roll follower wear or valve train wear. Um, that's step one. And then once you get uh, that test developed, uh, you have to go in and develop what we call base oil interchange and viscosity read across principles. What that does, and this is getting into the weeds again, I, forgive me, but that ultimately lessens 
the number of formulations across uh, that, are, that the marketers have to actually spend money testing because if you're going to pass it at a, at a, at a, um, at a heavier grade, then you're obviously going to pass at a lighter grade as well. So there's a lot of testing that goes into that aspect of, as well, um, a full engine test. And we're working on developing a, a new wear test. It's, it's going to be uh, the Ford 6.7 liter valve train wear test. I was looking at the, uh, the the scheduling for that. It'll take a full year to develop that test and get it, uh, you know, get it to a point where it will become an ASTM test method uh, that will be cited in in our specifications. So um, it is fluid. Uh, the people that are working on this spec are the professionals from around the industry. That includes the oil marketers. That inc certainly includes the engine manufacturers. It includes the additive companies. And and any and many other interested parties, and they they've been doing this a, a long time. We've been licensing engine oils basically for seventy five years, I think, this year. Um, so we're 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 sort of it's it it can be fluid, but with the request, EMA put a lot of time into that request. They know what they know what it looks like. They know what they need. There's a few things they're waiting on from the EPA, so there could be some minor changes. But in the long run, you know, we're sort of we're, we're sort of walking down a, a path we've been down before. Yeah, there's already a map. There's already waypoints. Mm -hmm. So going back to an earlier point in the conversation, you were saying that you're, you know, you audit the the aftermarket stuff and that's yeah. pretty well cleaned up. You know, you don't have the these bad players out there so much. Now, when it comes to the actual physical components, uh, one of the things that was mentioned was elastomers. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that a lot in the past that the, say a, a crankshaft seal supplier or a valve, valve stem seal suppliers. Well, the stuff worked great. And then somebody at, did something with an oil and it made a change. And now the stuff, it either gets hard or it breaks down. It doesn't lift off of the part. So we have too much friction. It wears a seal lip and so forth. Now, is there documentation that can be found that would say this has been tested against say this elastomer this elastomer and for are they sae mm. type things or you mentioned astms mm -hmm. because valve stem seal you know reciprocating type seal that's one of the things that i've been involved with over the years and it seems to be one of the toughest ones to find information on um crankshaft seals are pretty straightforward you know mm -hmm. rotating shaft seal it's pretty easy to do but right. when it comes to reciprocating shaft seal, um, you know, because there's that flow means that stuff's entering the combustion chamber, not mm -hmm. leaking out to the environment, it's a whole different measure. So, it, you know, mentioning some of these uh, other bulletins and so forth, the API 1525, for instance, is there something out there that someone could go to your site and find some specific test measures or is that a whole different area to go yeah it, it uh, it's a uh, multi-part answer to that question in terms of what the performance specifications require you can go into api 1509 and uh, go to uh, the service category for diesel engines uh, ck4 and fa4 and it'll tell you exactly which elastomers are part of the specification, what the limits are from the running of the test. Now, from an aftermarket audit perspective, 
um, we can't run every test that's built into a spec. If I were to run all the engine tests, for instance, <laughs> uh, I'd be doing one sample a year with my budget. <laughs> but um, so how we handle that is on the licensing side of things with the engine oil licensing program for an oil marketer to get a license for a particular product. What they will need to do is disclose to us a lot of that information. And we keep that on file at API, but we keep it secure because this is proprietary information, of course. And, uh, you know, so for um, for a licensee trying to, uh, when you license a brand of oil, engine oil with API, it's not just like, okay, give us the name and the visgrade and we'll, we'll put it up on the list. They ask for dozens of physical and chemical properties. They ask for evidence that the oil has been tested in an engine test stand for each of the test stands. And these tests are registered at the test monitoring center up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So you know that the test has been run. Um, and then on the other side of it, you know, as we're, it, it, we're, we're evaluating the candidate data packages, which the additive companies help the oil marketers put together and these things can be hundreds of pages of the test data right from the laboratory. Um, so all of that comes in on the licensing side. So basically you're proving to us that you're capable of formulating an engine that meets this performance level and this viscosity grade. And then what we do on the aftermarket side, uh, audit side is uh, very, very simply uh, because of the efficiency and the uh, econ economics of it, we do the physicals and chemical testing for the engine oils and if we see anything wrong we can dive a little deeper into some of the other tests if if necessary so um i know that was a long answer to your question but to summarize if you want to look at the specs you go to api 1509 um if you go if but looking for specifics around those elastomers i think you'd have to look up some white papers and what have you on sae's you know on sae's website you know, the real science behind it all has already been done by others beforehand. Um, we're taking, you know, taking that science and, and maybe citing those tests and citing those um, those properties in the specification itself while developing our own tests as well. I kind of expected that answer, but just to just to follow up, because I think, man, this sounds like a good article sometime in the future, mm -hmm. because um, again, going back to the API 1509, you say that that's on your site, people can go look at that free of yep. charge. Don't it's have to free. become a member of any association or whatever to to see that information. Uh, it's out there on to get a World Wide Web, right? Yep, <laughs> it's there. It's it's uh it may I can't say that it's easy to read. I mean this is this is very technical information, um, but it is there and it is available for everybody to see. Um, it's actually available. We're, we're working on making it available in, in, in uh, multiple languages as well. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, I know we've, we've talked a lot about a lot about the engine oil quality marks and everything as well. Just thinking about that page where all this information is contained, there's a really, really great link there for the uh, API engine oil guide, which is basically a layman's description. Uh, you know, it's a it's a trifold pamphlet back in the days when people printed things. But since COVID, <laughs> things are a lot different now. But you can download that. It's a great shop card. I'm going to be at Matt's in a couple of weeks, the Mid-American Truck Show in Kentucky. I'll be handing those things out to uh, to the folks there uh, that will really help, you know, sp spell out in, in good layman's terms, uh, you know, what 
what these categories entail, how the API marks work, what you need to be looking for. Uh, so if, if you get to that website, get to the API's website, you know, you can just Google API engine oil and it'll take you to my website. And if you follow all the links, you're going to find a ton of info. So engine oils at, at our tech and skills regionals that AERA uh, puts on for our members and actually non-members are welcome to come to these uh regional events as well uh oftentimes we talk about oil uh our buddy lake speed's always right amount right price right time and the right volume but you you look at what oils have to the environment they work in so they have to function with the, the seals but the engines have now with a like camshaft phasers Within an engine, you have the reciprocation, you know, piston rings. You have rotating shaft seals as reciprocating stem seals. But camshaft phasers, they actually kind of work like a rotary engine or a die grinder. You have mm -hmm. apex seals. It's the primary coolant within the engine because the flow takes away heat and gets it back mm -hmm. to the sump. Um, it's just absolutely amazing what we expect of these. And oh, sometimes... Yeah. You know, we, we talk about the cost and you see the price of a quart of oil and it's a little frustrating, but for what it does, it's really pretty cheap, to be honest. Um, yeah, you've summarized it perfectly. And, you know, it is far less expensive to have to rebuild an engine because you picked, you made a, you made a poor decision on, you know, at the time when you did an oil change. Right. Um, and that's what we spend a lot of time educating folks about, not just not just your listeners here, but we, we try to do this with as many people that will that'll take us um, and, and really try to hammer in the importance of, of, of and, and quality of, of lubricants because quite frankly, if you, if you can sum it up in a, in a line, I think we've probably all heard before, you know, everybody's always said oil is oil. Well, no, the new line should be oil is not necessary. Maybe the new line should be uh, not your father's oil. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So, you know, Jeff, I'm, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. So, Jeff, they uh, <clears throat> some of these uh, automotive companies have their own oil and want you to use your their oil in their uh, engines and all that. Do you know if any of the the diesel, like Cummins and Caterpillar, I'm, I'm sure they have their own oils, but is it really their own oil company or just oil made to their no. specs? No, um, remember we're we're licensing oil marketers. Um, there, there are some that have um, there are, there are many manufacturers OEMs out there that have their own line of products. That's for sure. Um, but they're generally working with um, oil manufacturers, you know, lubricant finished lubricant manufacturers, and rebranding or having those lubricant manufacturers make that oil and, and market it for them and what have you. So. Uh, the answer, the simple answer to that question is that's not very common with respect to the engine builders themselves having their own, you know, blend plant. Um, they leave it up to the experts to, to, to develop and, and, and manufacture the engine oils on their okay. behalf. Yeah, I think Dexos is probably the most recognizable where you see something like that. Yeah, and, you know... One thing to say about that is, you know, we strongly recommend that whatever the owner's manual says you need to do 
uh, when it comes to oil change, you should do it. doesn't matter if it's an API service category. doesn't matter if it's Dexos 2, Gen 1. doesn't matter what it is. Follow it because that piece of equipment, that engine that you're pouring that oil into was designed with that level of performance in mind. And if you want it to run optimally, stick with the recommended uh, oils uh, out of the owner's manual. Um, it's just so important these days uh, to do so. And, you know, again, uh, we've talked about this already, but breaking that habit from our, you know, from our shop folks and from our, you know, our drivers and our, our, our you know, our um, owner operators, it's, it's just, it's, it's a different time and a different place. There's this, this oil is a technology. It literally is a technology that works with other technologies to make sure you can get up and down the highway in the, in the safest and longest, long-term, uh, you know, practical manners uh, possible. Absolutely. Totally agree. Because again, 15 years ago, you just talked about the grade of oil or the weight, which there isn't really a, a correct use term, but that's what everybody said. Yeah. It's just the, the weight of oil is all that matters. But now people are starting to recognize the other identifiers as being important. Yeah. And it's true. And I know it's not what everybody that owns a shop wants to hear that oils are, you know, that they're, they're probably hearing this and saying, Oh, good Lord. I gotta, I gotta stock even more oil on the shelf. Um, Remember, these these newer categories are backwards compatible in certain ways. Again, I, I'll tell everybody to go look at that engine oil guide that we have up on the website. Um, it's not as complex as it uh, from an inventory side as as it is from the performance side. Um, it's easily managed. I don't think there'll be a need to carry a, a start clearing out a different corner of the garage for for another set of engine oils um, talk to your supplier work with them to figure out what it is you need and um, and 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 you can meet any any current model you're on the road with with these newer categories so you know that's 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 important that's rule number one and then you know rule number two is you know for the you know for these garages and shops is know what your customer's uh, vehicle or engine requires. Check it, double check it, and install that. Install that oil. And and for those folks that come in there and say, ah, I don't want that. I want to, you know, I want a ten W thirty, not a five W thirty. You know, just mention, you know, this this is this these oils. Your owner's manual says to use this, and these oils were designed uh, for your engine. You should you should stick to those requirements. Everybody needs to be spreading that message. Those are good points. And you, you keep mentioning going to your site and actually just something to share with everybody here is we have a quick link. If you go to AERA.org and then we have tech hyphen links and then they can actually uh, do a quick connection and go, go out there. So uh, maybe we'll even create a link for the uh, 1509. I think that'd be uh, good information considering our membership is the the shop that's actually working on the the rebuild so reman uh mm -hmm. they can they can definitely help their customer not go through maybe a repeat failure yep and uh 
it sounds like we're even now because now I got to go to your website as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, have any any kind of last questions or thoughts? So uh, the uh, we didn't touch much on the automotive stuff, but mm -hmm. the automotive oil is it going to be changing as rapidly as it has in the last five years? Yeah, um, it's no different on the other side of the shop, gents. Um, we've been licensing against the latest API S service category for gasoline engine oils um, since since May first of twenty twenty, um, and it, it's 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 become it. There are just as many new requirements going into motor oils for gasoline engines as there are. Uh, on the, on the diesel side, albeit smaller engines, smaller tests, but there's the, everything that we've talked about today. You can safely say is is uh, you know is happening on the gasoline engine oil side, and um, right now we're working on uh, we're license our current licensing standard is APISP, but there's been a field issue identified um, by an OEM around. Uh, by the OEMs around low spark pre-ignition in those engines. And with APISP, we, we, we adopted the first LSPI test, basically, low, low spark pre-ignition. And, um, and that was a test designed on, you know, a direct inject turbocharged engine. And it was a fresh oil test. Um, what, what some of the OEMs have identified is that that oil, uh, although it's passing LSPI, as you get further along in the in the drain intervals, which have been much extended over the years, uh, they're not they're still starting to get that engine knock or super knock if it's really bad. Um, so we're currently working on develop designing the test matrix and running the tests on an aged oil LSPI that will take care of the back end of that useful oil life, and uh, will be. Um, if all goes well, and if uh, if it's adopted, you know we'll have an SP plus that we'll be developing that will show up on the API donut in the bottom portion for those uh, for those OEMs who need to specify that that type of oil. Um, and then, you know, quite frankly, we uh, it, it will be no surprise if we get a, a request for developing the next engine oil category for gasoline engines as well, because as you know, this this uh you pretty much stop one and begin the next one so uh that that should be coming down the pike here shortly as too and you know quite frankly with respect to some of the newer engines that uh, newer technologies you know ev is on the tips of everybody's tongue and in and the title of every article um these days and 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 that while that might be spell bad news for internal combustion engines these 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 things need different types of fluids as well so api's uh been um uh has has assembled uh the same group that's been working on the ice internal combustion standard for engine oils forever and and trying to pull together the oems because it's non-traditional oems uh, in this space as well to bring everybody together so we can hopefully standardize the, you know, the, um, the fluids that are going to go into these EVs as well. Um, now uh, I'll debate you day and night about how soon everybody's going to be converting over to EV, especially given the, the, the news over the last, last week. Uh, you know, it, I, th I think, uh, everybody's a bit ambitious, but it's coming and we have to acknowledge that as well. So, 
we're, uh, we're, we're trying to stay on the, on the cutting edge of pretty much everything that's coming our way in terms of, uh, developing lubricants and, and, uh, and, and other fluids for the uh, lubricant standards and other fluid standards. One thing that's constant is change. <laughs> you just don't know which direction that change may go. That uh, is if, correct. You, if you take a look, 1913, there were actually more electric cars than ice. <laughs> Thomas Edison uh, tried and tried and tried with batteries. He even predicted that there would be airbags in cars so he tested batteries against different propellants and airbags so yeah don't hang your hat on a date or <laughs> a direction <laughs> i think that's uh i'm gonna have to borrow that one so another another new thing coming down the line jeff is uh <clears throat> some of these engines are on uh, on running on hydrogen mm -hmm. so any specific oil uh qualities that those engines should take awesome well, question, right. Dave. i don't have we're not working on anything um specifically in the hydrogen space at the moment that would probably uh sort of get uh, uh combined in with that ev fluids we call it the new energy vehicle fluids work group just because it's you know it's not just ev it's going to be it's going to be uh hydrogen it's going to be whatever somebody else comes up with down the pike um, so we will be addressing that as we get closer along to that. But, uh, you know, right now the, the industry's wrapped up in, in, in working on the next set of standards that will carry diesel and, and gasoline engines, you know, for the next decade. Um, but yeah, there it's, it's coming down the pike too. Those things need fluids from at this point in time. Generally what you're seeing is a, you know, an, an oil manufacturer pairing up with an OEM and working on a specific product. So OEM driven specs on that, on that side of the shop. But as uh, you know, I don't think the industry wants um, necessarily to, to go the route of ATF uh, for instance, which is heavily uh, driven by OEM specs. I, I, I think the industry's appetite for, finding common ground and minimum performance specifications is, is, uh, you know, taking, taking a new turn. And I, I suspect that will carry through to when, as we're developing fluids for these, these newer new energy vehicles. All right. Thanks. So I think, uh, with that, if, uh, there's nothing else that anybody just wants to throw out there in addition to we could uh we could probably close out i know everybody's got plenty of other things on to do um well gentlemen thank you very much for having me i i really enjoyed this conversation and now i and i hope to see you guys we're gonna remember we're gonna be at the mid-america truck show in louisville um here in march and we've got a booth uh i'll be sitting there at booth number four zero three four five it's right there in the north lobby there where uh where everyone you know right right inside the uh the arena there where everybody's got the trucks parked outside i hope i can see you guys there and if anybody that happens to be listening wants to come and ask a few more questions uh i'll i'll be there off and on i've got a couple of events set up there as well to talks and such but we hope to see everybody out there we're happy to get out of our basements and our garages in our bedrooms and, and and get out there and 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 shake some hands for a change hallelujah 
Thanks, gentlemen. Yep. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Chuck, that was a great interview that Dave and yourself put on with Jeff over there from the American Petroleum Institute. He did a great job of just filling us in on today's oils and how things are progressing. You know, I think there's a takeaway for everyone. Uh, your engine machinist, your counter sales guy, uh, and actually, if you're just a consumer, hey, what does that donut mean on the back of my bottle? Where can I find the information and how this impacts me? You know, uh, make sure in, when you're going to take care of your vehicle, uh, it's quite the investment. Look at your service manual and make sure that what it states in the service manual matches up with the, the bottle. Uh, if you do some of the service work yourself, we still have some DIYers out there. And, it, you know, it's silly, you know, it really sounds that we've uh, taken out, a, as Jeff used, you know, some of the bad players. So typically when you go to oil change places or your favorite service center or whatever, they all have to follow these rules and regulations, which makes it safer for you and your investment. No, Jeff was very knowledgeable about that stuff, and it was it was good to have him on. We've been trying to get him on, get him on, and, and have him in as a guest, and I'm glad everything worked out, and we were able to have him on and, and talk about this because it was good to get it from his aspect. You know, we've had Lake on to talk about some oils and this and that, Um um, but it's always good to get another perspective from somebody at API. It was, it was great to have Jeff on. Absolutely. And what we try to do, you, we've had Lake here. He He's not beholden to any oil supplier. API is not beholden to an oil supplier. So it's great. It's not a commercial. It's information. Information. Correct. Correct. Well, Chuck, so our next episode that we got coming up here. Uh, we'll actually be with um, the gentleman from Maxi Force Engine Parts, where I think we're going to talk about some small bore diesel engine opportunities in the engine building business. It'll be good to have those guys on. They can kind of talk about those, oh, what a Kubota's, uh, Kamatsu's, Yanmar's, that type of stuff, and have them kind of give us a little insight on the opportunity that's out there for a machine shop to make make some money on those small bore diesels. Yeah, these things are no joke. I mean, no. there's stationary power, lawnmowers, mini excavators. You, you just look around and there's a huge, huge capacity um, for the machine shops out there to get into that. Uh, I can think of a couple of production engineering builders that have stepped into that arena. And I did a couple of machine services and install at a, at a place that they are a authorized remanufacturing facility for Kubota. Um, so, you know, even Kubota and Yanmar and these guys, they see this. We have to have, it's quite the investment if it's stationary power or something like that. So they want to, they want to stay connected to it. So it's a good market. Yeah. And the nice thing about those two, you know, you can, um, you can rebuild those engines and there are parts available. And I think that's a little bit what Maxi Force is going to talk about is the availability of parts for those engines. And those guys, you know, like you say, uh, a Bobcat, a excavator, whatever it's in, you know, I mean, that thing makes money for that guy. So he wants it back as soon as he can and they'll pay. I mean, that's, you can make some good money at doing that stuff. Yeah. It's not a toy. It's livelihood. Exactly. Well, 
Sometimes they're a toy for <laughs> Sometimes people think they're a toy. <laughs> I would have been one of those at 15 years old when I turned one upside down. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, this toy is not so good. <laughs> uh, another thing we got going on, Chuck, is we're getting back to our regional conferences. So our first one will be at SCAT Crankshafts in Redondo Beach, California, May 14th. That's a Saturday. And if you don't know a little bit about our regional conferences, uh, we have a program set up where there's speakers throughout the day who give technical information. And there's also some tabletop exhibitors where your parts suppliers come and set up a little table and you have that chance to do a one-on-one -on -one with them where you wouldn't necessarily get that opportunity at a trade show where there's lots of people. So it's more of a scaled down, uh, I'll call it a mini trade show. Uh, it's usually a one day event. This is actually a one day event. And we'll also be giving away a bunch of door prizes. Um, you know, the vendors bring some stuff. Uh, AERA will have some stuff there. So it's good. Uh, it's a good, fun event. Food and drinks will be provided throughout the day. So look for information on our website at www.aera.org. Or if you're on our email program, you can definitely, you will be getting an email uh, talking about those. Uh, Chuck, I know you've done some presentations there. I've done them. Um, it's a great event to see those people. Absolutely. So true, Steve, because uh, it gives you more of that opportunity to ask a very specific question um, and spend some time with those people because there's not 10,000 people there. It's going to be correct in the neighborhood of 100 or less. Yeah, usually there's about 80 people there and then you got, you know, 20, 25 tabletops. Um, it's a good event where you can get that one-on-one -on -one throughout the day, you know, and if somebody's talking to, to somebody you want to talk to, you know, you can talk to them at lunch. Uh, they, they all sit together with everybody. Um, it's just a good event. It's a lot of fun and it's very educational. Very true. Very true. And speaking of the opportunity to meet someone and, and discuss some things face-to-face, our guest today, Jeff, he's going to be at the Mid-America Truck Show in Louisville, Kentucky. Yep. Yeah, so if anybody's attending that, I think Jeff mentioned there at the end his booth number and where it's located um, at the convention center there. So, or fairgrounds. Where's that? Fairgrounds down there in Louisville? Or is that the convention center? Yeah, it's right by the airport. So, convention center, fairgrounds, it's all... <laughs> In, in the same complex. And if you get bored with that, you can go to the amusement park. There's like a King's Island, I mean, a Six Flags or something of that nature. So make a big day out of it. <laughs> Have some fun. Well, hopefully the weather's good. <laughs> All right. If you're not subscribed to the Injured Professional Podcast, you can do so by listening to your pl favorite platforms or listen online at the podcast.injuredprofessional.com. And if you have any questions or emails or comments, you can email us at eppodcast at aera.org. Well, Chuck, another episode comes to an end. Great job. Uh, you and Dave done a good job interviewing Jeff there. Uh, appreciate Dave sitting in and doing that. And now we'll get ready for our next one coming up here with uh, Maxi Force Engine Parts. Weather's turning good. Hey, the ice is melting in our pond behind the building here. So that means a little fishing after work. <laughs> Good, good stuff. All right, buddy. Good talking to you. Uh, and we'll do it again next month. So until next time. Adios. <laughs>